friends, I am very glad that I am in this hall almost after 40 years, for 35 years. I used to come to the RIBA when I was a student and the Northern Polytechnic. And the only way to study was to not only attend the evening courses, but also to come here, look at the library, read some books and have nice tea and spend time in this place. So I was, uh, so I'm today thrilled, you know, that after a long time I'm here again. And I see a lot of familiar faces, so I must thank them for being here. Talking about India to most of you here is really talking about the textile industry in Manchester. Because it would be very inappropriate to explain to you really what is India, when you know, many of you know about it. But what I have found in the years that have followed since I started my practice, that what I also thought of India is not really the same as uh, I had apparently seen. Because as the years went by, everything that I was trying to do, it had two meanings. One was a superficial or one could say a natural or obvious <coughs> solution. And the other one was uh, the one which I did instinctively and I found that that had much more easy flow in the long run. What it means that when you do a building, when you are trained abroad and when you start thinking about principles to use and you begin to use them, you feel that what you are doing is right. But then after some time you find that maybe they don't have the same roots as you see around. And then begin to discover that what you had rejected sometimes as not really a rational solution and you had credited them with instinct, you find that perhaps that was the one which was the right judgment. And this is something which I found very interesting because as one began to work, one began to see in the Indian context, in the culture, whole lot of ramifications of different layers which were there in the behavioral pattern, in the social patterns, in the cultural patterns. And until a long while, it was difficult for me to recognize them. To give you an example, we have an office boy and uh, you pay him some money and every time he would come and say, look, I need a couple of thousand rupees because uh, I have to marry my cousin's uh, sister's son or something like this. Or there is some death in the family, so they have to spend money on the big fe feast and dinner. And in the beginning, I could never realize what it was. Then one day, I had the courage to ask him. And he says, if I don't do this, and if I don't follow the social norms, then the parents and my family and my brother, or even my wife when she is there, she will not be taken care of. In a sense that not he will be socially outcast, but there was that sense of social security which I never understood before, that there is not necessarily only the economic security, but the social ties are much stronger. And I thought this was a very interesting phenomenon. Like this, you know, one could find many. And one of the things which one begins to see that with the number of population, number of people that are there, the kind of problem we face, like the recent uh, assassination of Rajiv Gandhi, you can all see, we also wondered, you know, what would happen the next day. But today, not only the elections have taken place, but we would have a new government soon. We will also doubt about its stability, but it will continue. 
So what it implies is that every time I feel shaken up by the place in India, I begin to ask myself a question, how come that this is happening today and uh, why is it that uh, before people never thought about it? I mean, the real people in India, the villagers and the common man even doesn't feel disturbed about it. Which means, you know, that there, is a, there are levels of things, you know, which are happening. And I thought, if that is the case, there must be many things, you know, which are working in India. So with this kind of a notion, you begin to look at building. And when we talk about the roots of architecture, when we talk about what is architecture, or what is the meaning of architecture, or how do you discover architecture, and then you go to the Padmanapuram Palace, you know, near the end of Kerala, which is the southern, southern tip of India. Or you see these beautiful buildings of Jaipur or Rajasthan area. And one begins to see that what is the relationship between them? Is it only climate? Is it only the rationality? Is it something more than that? And you begin to see that there are many layers to those buildings. They have been absorbing cultures decades after decades, centuries after centuries. And what you begin to then discover is that this is one place where absorption has been very easy. And then this absorption fascinated me. Because uh, when you take a blotting paper and put some ink, and then when you have something else written and you add something to that, you find that after about a month's use of different colors of inks, you don't know which is the color of the blotting paper. It doesn't mean that the blotting paper doesn't exist or the original colors don't exist. But I think those patinas which are added, they become even so rich that you begin to say, yes, my God, you know, there's so much variation possible, each with its own identity and yet an assimilated quality. Once uh, when I was asking Corbusier about uh, what is the truth, so he drew two lines. He said, these are the two banks. And he says, do you know, the truth lies between the two and flows. It can never touch the bank. And I thought it was so pertinent that is there one side? Are there many sides? Is it a continuous thing? And I think those are the things, you know, which really, when you begin to see this architecture in India, whether you go to east, west, north, south, you begin to trace the influences and you begin to feel happy about it. Likewise, when you think about not only the society as a composition of many blotting papers, but then you begin to think of why then there are no destructions, why there are no changes, why it is always an idea of acceptance. Years ago, when I was talking to my father-in-law, who was a great scholar, so he gave me an example of the god Shiva. And he says, do you know in the mythology that you talk of Shiva, who, when the churning of the ocean is done and the poison comes out, the only person who could take it away, he says, you cannot throw that poison on the road or any on this earth because it has to be lifted up. So what he does is he drinks that poison and then the cobra is around him, his neck. That's why he's supposed to be blue. But what he then explained was that evil or changes should not be destroyed because in the destruction you have to also find another sequence of destruction. But the best way to do is to not only absorb and transform. And I thought this was another facet which has been there, available scene of transformation and absorption. I thought this is very interesting. And 
then you see the kind of things that one has taught. Corbusier's uh, work, when I was working in Paris and when I came back to India, I followed his climatic grade, technological things, plastic qualities. And one of the things which fascinated me was that if you work with climate, it is very useful. After some time, when I had done these buildings, a wise man, old man came uh, and said, look, your building seems to be very well oriented. And he says, you know, this is the way the Shastras, you know, the treatises talk about. I said, what does, that, what does that mean? He says, if you enter from the north, then you know you are entering with the goddess of wealth, from the god, god of wealth. And he says, if you had an entry from the south, it would be the god of death. Now, what they have done is, in the treatises, they have put religion as a part of the whole phenomena. So all our rituals are not really per se religion. It is the life which is made religious in the sense that religion is a part of life. You cannot separate religion and this. We don't go to church. We don't have to be baptized. Now, these kind of things are very, very interesting. And therefore, when the traditional buildings are seen, you begin to see them in, in uh, many ways if you begin to study. For example, if you discuss with the scholars, they will tell you that the house facade is really like your face. And the inside courtyard is really the heart of your body. You know, it is the soul because from there you can get the cosmos. You can look at the stars, you look at the moon. Now, climatically, it is important. But in terms of even spiritual values, they added these values. So the balcony becomes the face and the eyes, and the court inside becomes your heart. That means totally private to public to semi-public. So a lot of these relations begin to happen, and therefore that becomes even more interesting. Then I went to see the big uh, rock temples in Aurangabad called Ajanta Ilora. These rocket temples are more than 150 feet high and they started from the top and gradually come down. And I was always wondering how come that they have never deteriorated in their quality even though it took them centuries and many generations to do. And if you make a mistake, you would always do it wrongly. And strange enough, the man gave me some, the guide whom I knew, he said, I will tell you the story. So he took me to other places. And he told me that there is a method by which you work. He says uh, an, an architect comes there and he may be examining certain portions, give you general instructions, he goes away. Then other people are working, he may come back, he may not come back, he may come in 10 years. But he laid down the principles in such a way that you begin to see that everybody has a certain function to do within the limits to be given. So a column is carved broadly, then somebody comes and does a middle part, then somebody does carving. And within the framework, they have this flexibility. Now, what is interesting about this is that within the main structure, there are substructures, and within one order, there is a flexibility. And then all of a sudden, you discover that within your own family, the same story, that you can be as an individual, play within the framework, and then you have to take a consent of your family. But family has to be responsible to the community, so they are also free within that framework, but also controlled. That means that hierarchy has always inbuilt freedom, whether it is religion, whether it is architecture, whether it is behavioral pattern. And I think when you begin to see this, then you begin to see this phenomena that, well, if this is followed as a principle in architecture, if this is followed as the kind of ideologies in architecture, then architecture begins to become extremely interesting, rich, and viable. For example, if it is socially therefore oriented or culturally oriented, but there is also the economic aspect. 
when the economy fluctuates, you may have a small family or you may eventually become an extended family. All of us and the children may go back and you may be again young. You may be dividing the house. Maybe you need money to rent the house. You begin to find that there is nothing like a building form. It's very interesting that the Indian architectural building is really an added form, an additive form which can add or subtract. It is never the cube that one could talk about. So the difference between, let us say, maybe it may be a thing to discuss or debate someday, is that between the East and the West, one of the great differences is that in the West, we could say there is a black and white. In the East, at least in India, one could say that between black and white, there are all kinds of grays. And therefore, the positive and the negative, or the contrast between one and the other, doesn't exist as much. And there are many hues which get tied up. And I think this is very important. The other thing which is very important is that if there are no use, what does one do and how does one act? I think all of a sudden, if we are not very determinist, if we don't want to be very definite, then that ambiguity comes in. And then with the ambiguity, one is beginning to realize that there is something that you must remember. So the memory becomes very important and the experience only leads to memory. And therefore, experience becomes important. I think this is really what I think most appropriate in India, is that experience of architecture, memory of architecture, that ambiguity of architecture, that form and formlessness of architecture is really the kind of quality that I found most exciting. The example I can give you about the memory and the perfection is that we have these huge festivals. And one of the big festivals, I'm sure you must have seen sometime on the television, is with the Lord of uh, the Ganesha, you know, with the elephant head. After the tenth day, you take these uh, clay statues to the ocean or to the river nearby, and you put them in the water so that they melt. And the whole idea in India is that everything that you do must also ultimately disappear, because then you have the whole year to remember that event, and you start all over again. So this temporary, temporal, permanent, this whole idea of total permanent or the eternity really is a mental process which goes on. And that is why you feel the whole idea of the reincarnation and the behavior and whatnot. Now, when you take all these aspects, then the fabric of India becomes extremely interesting. And I think architecture then begins to go to an another level. And I think that that is what I would like to talk to you about. And this other level which I found was that when you walk through the city of Jaipur or Udaipur or Ahmedabad, one of the things that immediately strikes you is the space between the houses on the street, the transitional spaces. If you as an architect draw the drawings and if you see, which I will show you some slides, the positive and the negative, one would not know which is really the built space and which is the open space. Now, the moment that begins to happen, then you begin to realize that this void, I'm not using the word emptiness, because this void is not only full of life, but that is the one which generates life. It almost breathes space, and therefore everything begins to happen through that space, which we call a negative space, which in fact is the more positive than the negative space. Now, this space, when you begin to think of, then if you see that connection of those spaces to the internal course of the houses, you see that whole space like a fabric. And in that fabric, you see whole hierarchy of spaces. 
and those faces then begin to look like that there are elements which generate certain things, elements which don't generate, which means that there are centers which are small, then there are centers which are attracted by sub-centers, and then there are still bigger centers. Now, if you look at those as dots or as open spaces, then all of a sudden begins to see that like, you know, you would see a lake is formed with so many rivulets coming around, or the ocean which becomes infinite for us when all the rivers come and we don't know from where the beginning is or the end is, it takes another order and therefore that order then begins to appear in these plants. Now if that can happen along with the climate, along with the technology, along with these layers, then you one sees that how much one can do with these buildings if one had to think. The other thing one day I discovered uh, going to the temple in the south was that I was going and uh, some people went straight right up to the end, you know, in the Madurai, a huge temple with long corridors. Some people went in the procession, went across. Some people went on the left-hand side to the courtyard. Some people were sitting in the corridors. And I was wondering, so I asked the priest, how does this work? And then I went again to my this scholar, father-in-law, and I was asking him. He says, the temple is not just a place to go. It is a cosmos. It is a city. It is the whole thing where you live. And he says, it is also a place from where you get solace, so you don't have to go to a psychiatrist. I said, what does it mean? He says, in our philosophy, the space is the most sacred space that you make yourself. Like when we have a foundation-laying ceremony, we have a ritual in which, you know, we put a peg into the corner of northeast corner of the, temp of the house, because we believe that the earth is moving, so the land is moving, you may be moving, but for you now, that whole notion of moving has to be stabilized. So you put the peg and stabilize it. The next thing is that if you stabilize that space, you have to really go around. So you are stabilizing the space, but then you are thinking about it. So therefore, if you add the space and thought, your action begins to happen. But if you think of the time, then the action and time has to be related if you want to be yourself. Which means that the time is not what the wristwatch talks about. But time is notional, because that's how you think. Like people have rituals, and they, when they want the Ganges water, you know, and if I say this is the water of Ganges, it is, this is what it is. So the whole notion is very much mental process as against the sensual, in which you find voluptuous, sensuous forms, or the rational one, in which you, know, you find the building which is all measured, and everything is measurable. I think, therefore, you begin to see the meaning behind that ambiguity, meaning behind that formless form. Because when you add all these elements, you say, my God, you are really free. And I think this freedom, though dangerous, but I think also it's a very favorable thing. And what I'm going to do is, therefore, show you some slides of how I have discovered, or at least I have learned a fragment of this phenomena, and how I'm attempting to practice this in the work. So I'll show you the slides. In 64, I did the School of Architecture. And uh, you can see with the climate, the only place which is most useful is the outside space. I mean, really, the school can be inside, but it really should be more outside. This is the left-hand side. And then I did some housing, low-cost housing. I found that the open space was really the most critical to use. 
Technologically, you can see when you make a brick arch, you know, because the steel was not available. So we will not talk of uh, the technology, climate, etc. But I thought the open space is really important. And how does one create this contact, con uh, relationship between the indoor and the outdoor and the space for the public use? Then I had a chance to build some housing. In between, I did this housing. So I thought maybe the open space is very important. Where is that? Oh, yes. When you do this open space, I try to do this kind of open spaces here, a, a regular processional route here, and a vehicular route here, and in between these are all pedestrian areas, so the houses are very tiny. But, and then this is the real public space. So I really discovered that people really would use these open spaces more fruitfully, and uh, the life really becomes more community-oriented because people do gather, they discuss, they chat, they sing. And you can see in summer what could happen. They could sleep on the terrace or they could have this courtyard. So this filtering of the space from the sky down right up to the court in the house and up to the street I think is the most fascinating aspect of architecture. Because then what happens is that the building that we call, or the wall that we make, or the surfaces that we make, begin to appear like layers. And if we think of them as layers, I think that the whole notion changes. Because then it is no more an object, it is really an experience, because it's almost like a theater, it's like a drama. Then I found that old cities, because then gradually begin to see the city, that you can see these little streets and these areas, and you could see one of these streets could be this area. And you can see how the land gets filtered. You come like that, you get into this yellow, you are in the street here. You come across in the street, then you get into the sub-street, then you get these verandas, and then you get the room, and then you get series of courtyards. So this filtering, this yellow, and that little ochre, brown color, is really what I think is really the building. And these really are then the building patterns which happen. But the life really begins here. And interesting enough, it has enough diversity and richness to really make you feel go there often. And then you are confronted with this kind of a situation, large number of people. This is one festival day in Ahmedabad. That's the old Ahmedabad, that's the old gate there, and this is all what you see as population. And then you see the other scene of the coexistence the skyscrapers and the slums. Now these are the realities for us, you know. So 50 to 60 percent of the population is not exactly in this area, but one could say that they are not living in really good condition. And this could be maybe 2 to 5 percent or maybe 10 percent at the most. And therefore the disparities are tremendous and therefore our problems are very different. But we have to still find a way to solve both of them and find a way by which we can really match this situation. Then you see these other, you know, we always live in paradoxes. We live in tremendous contrast. Look at this, you know, this is the traffic in Ahmedabad city, and you will see that there is nobody who is disturbed. This is not a holiday, but this is not a disturbed area at all. And this is uh, every day. I took recently a video at, uh, in Amsterdam, I took the, this video of uh, Ahmedabad, to show the students and I showed them the elephant because it was last week that I had taken that video. So it's not something which I'm 
telling you about uh, that it is only a, a made specially for that. But on the other hand, in the same city, you would find these pockets with people living in total community life, with their temple, with their tree, with their shadows, with their no house, but really the extended space here. So this is really many people, many families living together as a community inside. And uh, you can see also these things coexisting. And this is happening in, within the distance of 10 minutes, 5 minutes. So you can imagine what kind of image or impression do we carry with us when we talk of architecture. And then you see when people start coming in, this is how they come and then they start living on the pavement. On the other hand, you'll find some settlements after they have gone few years, they will settle like this. And then they may build this eventually some houses, so they may rent into this place, and this tree and the platform will become their place. So, homeless, but open space, and then gradually in the transition, search for this place, for them, a sacred place. Again, you can see when the government built this low-cost housing, they start building these houses. They begin like that. They may build also with absolutely temporary huts, but the lot has been given to them. And then uh, they will add a room, then eventually they add another floor, then they will sublet it. So this is how the sequence goes of the houses. Either it can be used by the same family or by sublet. These are the people who are resettled from the slum areas on subsidized basis. So these programs go on. And on the other hand, they have no place here in front. The street is of no consequence because the government has made them in the most economical way, in a standard way, so all the drainage, etc., can be on this right. Like, for example, the toilet in the front will never be accepted, but they think it's the cheapest way to do. So things which are not useful to the people, they will make under the pretext of economy and build them. On the other hand, people who have built on their own, they have built these settlements, and you can see the way they use this space so that their relationship is very close. So this is really the contrast in which one is finding. When you give people a choice, I think they do a better space. They find for themselves a better choice. When you design, you design with certain order and therefore it doesn't work somehow. So when we were given this project to do, this is 200 acres of land in Indore. And like there are many large and small projects of rehabilitation of the squatters, the squatters are the people, you know, who live with, they said, temporary structures, and then uh, some of them, over time, build temporary things. When you want to evacuate that place or you want to have additional facilities to be given, you find some little pockets, you know, small like this, and you do rehabilitation programs. This happened to be a large project because this had 8,000 families to be put in. The minimum plot would be 25 square meters, and we had to do about 4,500 families like this, the balance of these plots are slightly larger, up to 60 square meter. They will be sold at a slightly higher price, so subsidy will be given to these people. Now, having seen these use of spaces and open spaces in the lifestyle, we thought we should not make a conventional thing, but we should really create these spaces so that the people really use, like for example, this is the street, and these are the sub-streets. So the vehicle can come here, but the scooter can come into these areas, but their life activity would be in this area, including this big open space where you find a school, maybe a cattle shed, maybe a dairy, and health center, and you come to this main civic center, this one. 
So when we build this one, conditions where how does one get this open space? Who will own this space? What kind of criteria? So we worked out the drainage system, which became very economical, which has become now almost a world patent. And we found that we could really find every house with a toilet and a wash, give maximum numbers with one chamber, one manhole here, and therefore we could save on that. We could also save on the drainage lights of several roads. And we made this plan. But this plan, if you see here, is a very standard. What we do is we provide only the plinth with this toilet. So this is the only thing provided with the drainage, water supply, and light point. Then plinth is provided, and then they start building the way they like. What we have done here is you can see how they would change this place. This is what would happen to the house eventually, because this is the way they will use the open space, and this will become the richest part of this area, and they will become incidental. So all these metamorphoses, the transition that will take place, have to be taken into account. So what I'm trying to say is that, therefore, I am going from outside in rather than inside out in terms of design decisions. The reasons are the way people use that space. And so what we did was we made this uh, one demonstration with uh, taking the elements from the existing slums. And we build this one, but it should not be like this at all. It will be different because everything at one time will not be in brick. It will not be very similar. But what we did was we did 60 houses at a very low cost to show how the standard components used by them in other centers of housing, low cost housing, how they do invent things like minimum staircase, standard doors, minimum windows, even making um, perforated jallies for the windows. Then we made this drawing to show even if this one is there and by the time they change the colors and they add all this, it will still become very different. So this is really how we thought housing could be done. But the basic idea is that the open space, the terraces, the ground, the staircases become really the designing elements. They become the principal areas of design. So this is what we have built, but as I said, we really are now waiting for them to occupy these areas, so all this will change. Everything here, you will not see this in another few years. It would be modified. But the other ones are not given more than the plinth. So they will be totally changed. And what we are now doing is really post-occupancy survey to see how people can really use those spaces, the open spaces and the semi-open spaces. Then you come to the next stage of this discovery, and when we were supposed to do the new town adjoining Jaipur. Jaipur is one of the most beautiful cities in India. And that is because the Maharaja who designed it has been the most significant man because apart from being a statesman, he I would consider the wisest man that our history had produced because he was a famous astronomer. All these observatories were not only designed by him, but because his concern with astronomy but he was a great poet, he was a religious man, he used to write things, he, was, he, was, he knew dancing, etc. So what he did was, when he decided to set up this city, he said, uh, I want people to be happy because if I make the city, the city is for people, so I will get the paradise from the heavens down on this earth if I can. I want them to be smiling and happy. So one of the things was that this chart which I mentioned earlier about that cosmology, orientation-wise, this is north, etc. But the whole idea was that this Vastu Purusha Mandala, this chart as we call it, Vastu means environment, 
Purusha means energy and mandala means we could say horoscope, you know, as a crude word. That means that if you have the right balance between environment and energy, and if it can be placed properly, I think life could be much smoother and better. Next, oh. So, two principles, there were many, but two of the fundamental principles is that you must be able to establish institutions which keep, give faith to man. So, either temple, school, colleges, craft centers become very important and therefore he established those without making them very obvious. They were always put on the corner of the street or maybe inside, never in the access, never in the middle of the place. And the other one was to invite people from all over India to set up craft centers so that they will earn money. His predictum was, I will only charge you if you earn. And I think this was very, very important. That means people who pay tax, the city will always be beneficial, well maintained. So with this kind of assumptions, his architect and himself, whose name is Vidyadhar, established this and you can see that nine squares were gradually modified. This is the old system of planning. But he was pragmatic to really know, so he, what he did was, there was a water tank here, there was a hill, so he modified those nine squares, readjusted them, even retained some of the villages which were here, and made not only an orthogonal plan, but you can see the variation that he got into these plans, and as you will see in detail, this plan which looks like a regular grid, grid, or grid iron plan, is, exact, is not necessarily the grid iron plan, you will see the difference. So he established this main street, then the sub-streets, and then the sub-streets. So, his idea was, you see, you can see the palace is put in a corner and the gate is on the side. It is not in the center at all. So, you would never notice that you are going into this court. So, he worked out this in terms of climate, orientation, but also the lifestyle that you can be very formal here and you could be extremely informal with your group of people. So, in hierarchy, like Corbusier talked about the seven roads, he talked about the hierarchy, but hierarchy based on lifestyle and the needs which are required. Therefore, building, building form, the pattern would be related to that. So, you could see here a smallest street, eight feet wide, four feet wide, the smallest with the service, and the large streets with the big public buildings in the corner. People could gather here. So, between the two, there was a whole hierarchy established. So, from public to private. And then, he developed some generic forms, very simple forms, but very useful. Climatical, as I mentioned to you earlier, courtyards, entrances from very public, semi-public to private, using stone technology as it was the easiest thing to do. So, you find two courtyard house, single courthouse, again two small courthouse, and then three courthouse. So, all these houses he established as pattern and you can see here a generic pattern here, the court, the staircase, the terrace, and the architecture. Now, with the street and with the court, he established pattern like this. So you can see then a formal street gradually changing to informal and eventually becoming extremely informal and totally becoming private. And you can see this is another plan, but again in the re reverse process. So you can see the open spaces here and you can see the black as that. And you would not know really whether the building could be here or building could be here. One could really construe that the air has to go. This void here is a major part of the fabric. 
So there is nothing like negative, nothing like positive, both are of equal weightage because the life goes on in both the places. So you see these changes, courtyards into the private houses and large institutional courtyards with gardens. And you can see here the terrace. This is really a living room open to sky because in summer evenings it's wonderful to see the stars or winter early morning. You could see a street with a little entry. So series of thresholds were established going in. And you can even see here a temple or a palace is set up, but you can go across. So you see a series of layers with the space going through. I think what's interesting about the architecture in India is that the spaces go through the buildings and perforate the buildings. And the forms are not that imposing to really say that, yes, this is subservient. But then what he did, as I was mentioning earlier, a formal facade, and then gradually the facade getting modified as the streets begin to become less of less consequence. So near the palace, you could be something else than near the bazaar, or maybe within the rooms or within the houses, within the clusters. You know, it was very interesting how he developed these openings. So there are a whole lot of standards that we studied. And we found out that each element was added. And this addition really made it most interesting. Because I had not idea that if was, one was making a building which was going up and down, is it possible to make or not? I mean, these were the questions I was asking. That how does one unify with the diversity that is possible in India? So with the project that we had, this is the old Jaipur, as you saw. Now the Jaipur is all expanded in this area, including this space. They found here 1,000 acres of land, which was occupied previously by the military. And they gave us this job to design this one for a township for 100,000 people, which means that eventually in another 10 years, it would be almost double, or at least one and a half times. So our first task was to link this city, a new town, to the old spine, that main, main um, walkway, which is really this one here, into this area. And the second one was this green that I have shown. When Maharaja Singh bought this land, he had set his building, this city, next to the hills. And they were all green. Now they are all denuded. So one of the things which he thought was that as much as he was interested in astronomy, supposing we get involved with this kind of energy consciousness, and we said, we want to make an energy conscious city. How do we do that? So one way to do is to bring back that energy. That means start reforestation. So one of the first tasks was to find techniques of recycling the sewage treatment plant, I mean the sewage. And we, we found out that we could really recycle six and a half million liters of water. If we do that, then we have to pump from here the water here on the hill. So this particular element is very much like a counteracting the, I mean, similar um, uh, example of the yantra, you know, this uh, observatory with water. So we thought we could really get symbolic elements which are equally valid and use three and a half million liters of water here. The other water will go by gravity, come here and go through this channel. from there and from here and come down here and again go back. And the idea was that these would become the green ways within this area 
And this is the central business district which goes across and you can always use. So the idea was again to find a way to link this one to the link this area. So the principle that we began to do, and I thought we should explain them in a simple drawing, was the sun, the moon, the water, and the gates. That constitutes the place. Then the landscape. Then this Vastu Purusha Mandala, that is the cosmic man putting together the whole thing in a proper environment. Then I had added this man with a balance because uh, what I had learned from this yogic exercise to other people was that if you are in balance, then everything begins to get into balance. Now that means that one has to then find out how do you conserve your own energy and energy of the town. One of the ways is transportation network. And I was wondering on these nine squares, I found out that this diagram worked most beautifully. You can see this red going across. And this is really like those eight, you know, which is the most interesting traffic plan. I found that from any place, you are not farther than 250 meters. What it means is that if you can locate your bus stops and have frequent buses in this area, this 100,000 people living in this area, this is a, almost a one and a half kilometer square, and this is the central business district. You could really go anywhere with a bus, and also the green areas become cooperative, because what Jaipur had done before was to have these craft people and other people to work which means you can bring the small-scale industry, etc., within the reach, sell it in the regional center, and it goes out from there to the market. But these were becoming then the main centers. And then that square, which is again multiple subdivision of nine, you begin to get patterns of design in terms of your housing, very interesting situations of open spaces, closed spaces, and courtyards. And this is what we planned, planned this way. If you see here the drawing, this is again another demonstration just to show drawing, an open space a courtyard, you are coming into this internal court, then you can see this, the generic house which is just drawn here. You are in the main court there, you can go on the upper levels, terraces here, and you see this cluster of houses with again bigger courtyard. These are those hills across, and then these are the houses with courtyard. So the whole idea is to show in one drawing the concept of cluster, the city, the public realms, and then the private and semi-private areas. The, you can see then the model which was made, and these are the comparisons between, these are the same scale. You can see the size of this new town, Jaipur, the old cluster and the new cluster, the old housing groups and the new housing groups. So you can see then variety of patterns can emerge in the same fabric. And this is the lesson we learned from Jaipur. The other thing which we found from Jaipur was one must find a way to control certain areas architecturally, not 100% but even 60%, establish the spine. And therefore, we designed this with an idea that this could become real. How do you really design the street structures so that this formal and then gradually becoming extremely intimate and therefore very informal? This contrast you know, between formal and informal, between noise and silence, between commercial and very private, between academic and uh, highly commercial. I think these are the things, you know, one, is, one thinks about using as counterpoints to design. So we made a drawing. I mean, this is an imaginary drawing showing there could be gates of some kind. There could be a shopping street. There could be areas of green areas for water and green gardens and whatnot. And there could be these areas. And then these are all elements which could be precast. And we could get houses built 
of different kinds and gradually the town could be built. So the technology can be used. So you see, employment becomes very important. And we found that we could use new technologies, but also using the labor as one of the elements, local labor. So if you see the nature of the build forms, this is that central spine, and you can see the nature of build forms, how much variety you begin to get in these areas. You know, you get private to almost public, and you can see here how the open spaces come out here. And this is what uh, I saw yesterday with Brian, this Elgin Crescent, and I was telling him that this is what we are trying to do, is that there are public spaces, street, and then you get these private areas. And then they could work very effectively as really the domains which are useful. So this is how the build form was uh, drawn. All the buildings are about three to four stories maximum. So they are walk up. We do use our rainwater and use that water into the courtyard so that that can be used for summer humidification. And the gardens are used by the treated water. And the only water which we use from digging wells is for drinking. I find it very fascinating the forms you know, which begin to change and they articulate. So this is how really you can see on a, just a larger fragment of those drawings. Now from these I have derived some principles and I thought I'll talk about those principles. As you see with the climate, this is in Jaisalmer, you get not only these small streets, you get terraces and a growing house. I think this is really our nature of the form of the building. When you go to Udaipur, which is a dense town, you not only see this, but you also see these windows and very, very small windows around. And you begin to see how they relate to, I have, before I was thinking that, yes, it is very nice for weather, climate, uh, privacy and all that. Now I see deeper meanings in their colors, deeper meanings in their forms. I see meaning deeper meaning in the economic problems which are there because the same generic form is for the rich man. Only thing is his balconies get decorated, which means that there are certain constants, certain variables, and therefore if we can fuse them together, then the form or the kind of areas don't get destroyed. The second thing is the sensuousness of the form. This is in the desert of some very near uh, Jaisalmer. But look at this kind of quality. Now this is done out of mud and very beautifully done in terms of really how does one emphasize entrance, the courts. So the simplicity but sensuousness, the body architecture, architecture oriented to body is very important. On the other hand, not very far from there, this is the Jaisalmer house, Haveli, in which you see a skin to protect the inside. So the layering of the house for climate has been used. The colors have been used. Now here, if one begins to see these little thresholds, are really extremely important because when the ladies sit there, then the windows at the right height. So that relationship, and spatially one begins to see a great variety of rhythms established because one has added these elements out of need. I think a singular space doesn't look as effective, doesn't work as effectively as multifaceted, multi-layer space in India. Then you go to the next stage in Jaipur, and you see this courtyard and wonderful technology used but the whole idea of the court or even the configuration of these forms against the skyline, the silhouette, the open space, all these open areas. So you can see here 
very good demonstration of very sophisticated technology using not only climate but this filtering device to create the nature of architecture that has still stood the test of time. Having seen this, and as I told you earlier about the Vastu Purushamandala, one of the things which I found in the river and the ghat was, I never understood what was the meaning of the steps, except saying that the water really has to be near you. I think deeper meaning is that if the water goes down, and if there are no steps until the last water, I think the dignity of water goes down. I think to dignify, the relationships have to be maintained, and therefore architecture became a tool to maintain that level between the water and the, and the person through the steps. Having said this, now as I was telling you, it's all a notion of mind. Now this is not a temple, not a pakka building, but this is really in a tent and a wedding is taken place and there is a moon and there is a fire. Now that means, you know, that the fire is there, but the moon is there. Actually what it needs is now the water of Ganges. The space has to be made sacred. So what do they do? They do little rituals beforehand and the space is stabilized. Then you have again another ritual with water, which you have said mentally with chanting mantra that this is the Ganges of water. And then the space becomes really sacred. And then the ceremony which is taken place in almost no man's land becomes sacred. Now, this notion of having the space devised by your own mind is extremely important. But then the ritual also begins to become very important. And you can see that ritual here in the temple at Modera with the steps and the tank in the axis of the temple. Now, when the temple is made, people are really here. So below the ground, above the ground, and in that axis, but more important, the ritual that is being done, the sanctity begins to get achieved and developed. And this is, a, I think, a very interesting phenomenon. The question is, how does one get this across in buildings, is it possible? The other thing I found was that I was wondering why this column is small and this column is not only big but it goes here. Eventually I found when you look at many, many temples that the variety is not only essential but it is like as many people, as many gods, as many examples of conversation. So architecture is a catalytic agent, it's a dialogue and therefore the dialogue takes place between building and the skin or the wall that is there. And therefore, all these elements begin to become important because we do hang a painting on the surface because we want that, that wall to become alive. And therefore, there are rituals in India which do have ceremonies of eight days with sacrifices in the villages. And after eight days, that wall becomes a member of the family. So they, and I have seen it with my eyes that the wall has to be made alive. I mean, it's a notion again, but it's a very interesting idea because then you begin to cherish it extremely well. On the other hand, when you see this Elora, the rock temple, all these things show that the things are not necessarily finite. They counterpoint, counterbalance one another. It was not because the craftsman did not know how to finish the building. I think that complete and incompleteness is extremely important in the context that one doesn't have to really bring an end to a form. I think it always comes. That means it's almost like talking about ruins. The ruins speak more than a main building. Then you see these fantastic changes, you know, buildings which go up to the sky, temples, and sometimes they go below the ground. Now, therefore, this relationship between your body and the extension of your body as architecture, now it's an extension of your soul, if you call it, going down or up. I think these aspirations are both ways valid. And I think, therefore, 
it's not only climate, but I think that these hidden meanings, you know, are things which I find very, very exciting. And now you can see the actual plan manifestation. The gate, this is a Madurai plan. You can enter there, you can go to the axis, or you can come to this building, or you can come to this court, go across here, come back, or you walk from here, go into this area, walk from there, or you come from here, cross into this area, go to this water tank. So, and not only that, these buildings are built in successive years by different dynasties, and yet, you know, they become wonderful as elements. But what is interesting is that you can take your own time to reach there. You can choose your own space and gradually go there. That means the destination is a notional affair. You can reach there when you want. It's your choice to do. And then you see in another temple the way these layers get related. So from here to further down, you know, this is a temple in Srirangam, in Tanjore, sorry, in which you see these layers. So between one and the second and the third and the fourth, there are events which are added with walls and columns and courts and the open spaces. And therefore, they become really exceedingly important events for remembering, for conversation, for dialogue, for gathering. And again, you can see the nature of columns, the variety that you get. And then, even when you make a temple, this is an axis, but this is made like this. So the accessibility to the temple is extremely important. And how does one create this, this space against that space? I think this is the important thing, as the positive and the negative. And these are very useful dialogue places. On the other hand, another dialogue takes place through symbolic gestures. So communication is not only physical, it's also visual, it's also philosophical or spiritual. So with this one, I'm going to show you the instead of management. I'm saying that I have learned only few things out of this, but I'm trying to do it. So this management institute was picked up from Fatehpur Sikri with this passage going across. And as we are uncertain of the building, the directors change. This building is going on for the last 12 years. Six directors change in between. Some directors didn't want the buildings in the same place. So sometimes this building which is here was here, here. So it changes. This building was very small. It has become three times bigger. So you are beginning to think of open-ended plan and you go on adding these things. So you really build the structure. You build this one across. So this is actually semi-open with pergola here and pergola here. These are covered with skylights. These are the faculty blocks. These are the classrooms here. This is an administration. But you can see the positive and the negative here, and that is what you see there in the site plan. Those are the dormitories. This is the court. This is the garden. This housing is done by Kanvinde. And this is how you approach. You come here, and then from here, you are all completely pedestrian inside. Bangalore is a very good climate. Almost, um, it doesn't, I mean, now it goes up to 90 to 100 degrees, but otherwise, a very cool place. We used to call that as a retirement place. Very popular with the British. And um, useful granite stone is uh, available there. And so we started building this one with an idea that we could really make. One of the things I remembered was the greenhouses in the, in the big botanical garden there. So the impression was that when the trees come up here in these areas, you will see only some part of the building. But you will really see these spaces, these connections going through and the light. 
or these little passages for students to gather. So really, the classroom is more on the outside, or these connections which open into the court, they become really uh, related spaces to use. This is the main court, one of the main courts. So there's an outdoor class, and then there will be a big public space here with the trees in this area. And then there are these kind of pockets where students can always sit down and gather. This is a government, all these buildings are semi-government buildings. They are of the same cost as the public works department. So they have to be made in with simple materials and very direct technology. But you can see here that pergola, the connecting link that I talked about, it changes its nature throughout the day because of the light and these shadows. And this will have some greens in this eventually. So it's really the space which has now become important and they, they enjoy this space more uh, than the spaces in the classrooms because they find that there's a lot of air and a lot of space. This is the labor institute again with the double structure inside and outside. This is the entry, courts. This is the main place. This is the director's area here. This is the dining area, the hostels. And again, you can see how I was trying to make this. I was fascinated by the fragmentation of buildings. I find you know, that fragmentation of building gives me a choice to change. The client has a choice to change. And the richness is really much, much greater. So this is the this is another building which we just completed. Idea was an octagon and it continues like this. This is on the rocky side, so we had to preserve the rocks. Again, the idea is to really create that public spine and the places to gather. These buildings are the recent ones which are now under construction. But again, as I said, this is really the area. This is the central space. And I find that between each building there, there is a center of this one. And then there is a sub-center here. And I find that these sub-centers become, and the main centers become very active. And the dialogue is always richer here. So the lower level is really covered area. And the upper area is a pergola. So I use climate and the spaces that way. Those are the dormitories there. These are the steps. This is the public realm. And these are becoming really public and private. These are all low technology, very simple buildings. This is in Pune. Also a government office. Government officers are going to be trained there. This is a fashion technology institute. And I think this building has a very bad surrounding. And I thought, if I create this main center here, which becomes almost a myth, then the sub-centers will become extremely important. So I wrote even a story on this one of how in over centuries this building was built. And so each building then takes different form, gradually becoming maybe very similar, but not the same, using different overlays of materials. So the building form, that's the entrance. These are the classrooms. This is below, there's a theater, this is an amphitheater. 
another amphitheater. This is the administration, library, hostel. And the whole idea is that you do use from a very latest technology like mirror glass to mud walls in some portions of stone walls. The idea being that one should really feel that the building is made of many, many parts over time, but always trying to focus here so that this really is supposed to hold this whole fragment together. And now I'll show you the office. And as I said earlier, this is really the outdoor space. And this is how I borrow the light. So there is northern light and the light. This is six feet below the ground here and three feet below the ground in the studios. This is like an oasis. The concerns were, do you really need a facade at all? Or is the facade made of many parts? Is there one way to go or there are many ways to go? So these questions that I was raising, I was trying to find them. So you can see here the structural system, then the structural system changes there. So you get multiple systems put together. This is really below the ground by six feet. And this is the route that you come. You come across like this. You can go up or you can take this area like that. Now, as I tell people that this I made with an idea that many people who are angry with me come here, lose their way, then they can't find me at all. Or when they find me, they've forgotten the purpose. So I think this whole idea of creating this uh, ambiguity with the land, I think becomes very useful. This is how we use it for some functions. This is where my daughter got married. That's why I had put this red carpet there. That's the drawing. This is the other entry, which is really now become the real entry, very small entry. And this is where we converted the studio into a conference room for this housing conference. These walls are used with a double skin, very thin with hollow tubes inside. So they become very cooling. This is how we get natural light in different places. This is below ground and that is really on the upper first level. These tiles are broken bathroom tiles. This is a very old system, but I've used it because it does help in terms of reflecting the sunlight. And that is the northern light in the studio. You can see how one gets in or one uses the terraces. This is how it looks like. And what I thought that all these efforts that I'm trying to do are an attempt, but they're far from what the realities are. And when uh, my friend William Curtis was writing the book, I found a very interesting statement, which I gave it to him. And I said, maybe it is useful. So he had, he put it you know, in the back of the book. And I thought I'll read this to you because to me, this is one of the very interesting statement written by uh, these scholars years ago, I mean, centuries ago. So it says for the architects, he who begins to work as an architect, whom we call Sthapati, without knowing the science of architecture and is proud with false knowledge, knowledge must be put to death by the king as who ruins the kingdom. Dead before his time, his ghost will wander on this earth. 
he who though well versed in the traditional science is not skilled in the work will faint at the time of action like a timid man on the battlefield he who is expert only in his workmanship but unable to understand the meaning of the traditional science will like a blind man be misled by anyone even so he who knows the traditional science and its meaning and masters the craft is not as yet the perfect architect for immediate intuition a readiness of judgment in contingencies and the ability to fuse them into the requirements of the whole are the distinctions of a true architect it is then that the builder himself once his work is completed is struck with wonder and explains oh how was it that i built it well as i said i remember this because the first part really strikes me the most important when i was doing my school design i was always thinking that if you teach architecture in the school and if it is not really good and if it is not appreciated they will hang me there so far they have commented but not so badly so what i think from this is that architecture really in the real sense finally is that that explanation that yes who or is it i who did it or it is is that the building i saw so what we cannot remember what we cannot describe but what we experience as memory i think to me is a very good taste of good architecture and i think the what i find in the tradition in architecture is that kind of quality and um, what i'm doing is far from it but i'm glad that you gave me the chance to show you thank you with one note. And, uh, <clears throat> the richnesses of the languages of india and as a starting point if one um, is pursuing an urbanism structured by its voids i think it's quite clear from the pictures that uh, the space is saturated with the style of the period and that's using style <clears throat> in a very general way as one talks about fashion style 
That is, it, it's the whole way the life works in that space has the style of the architecture. The space and the architecture are a single thing. Therefore, the difficulty arises um, because the whole thing is also saturated with the technology of the period. If you <coughs> switch the technology, you can't use any of the spatial language of the previous technology. It simply doesn't work. It's a unified the space, <coughs> you remember the pictures. There was um, the one with the elephant's feet um, sort of building and a tank. That was, the space was so absolutely positive, as it were, uh, with the architecture, that this lock is um, a thing that's only experienceable. You can hardly get it through the pictures. I mean, there is, <coughs> there is <coughs> excuse me for one moment, there is a small part of London where this happens. That is, as you go down Regent Street and Lower Regent Street and debouch uh, down the steps uh, into uh, St. James's Park, there's suddenly a, a section there where the architecture and the open urban space and the way people behave lock. That is, you pass between the... Um, the Athenaeum and the old army and navy, uh, and then to the monument and then down the steps. The interlock between the architecture, the way of life, the open space is absolutely together. So that it's not an impossible, you know, not an impossible thing. We're talking about there, the same period as, as Jaipur, to the uh, end of the 18th, uh, early 19th century. That is, this phenomenon of spatial life building interlock uh, is not a thing that's in the far distant past. It's, in a, rel it's a relatively... Uh, and of course, what the wonder is in uh, of the good luck Indians have had uh, in our part of the century is that I'm sure this sense of lock is there in Chandigarh. That is, that it's there is the lock between the notional open space and the building. So that the pursuit of the uh, 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 urbanism developed through the voids uh, is also a pursuit um, of a high style somehow. That is, everything is, in most of the examples you've shown, were absolutely saturated with the style, you know, in, in, in the sense that. Um, uh, using the adjective saturated there. <laughs> when a person comes out of the sea and he's been there two hours, his body is permeated by the water, not just his clothes, his hair, his being is saturated. And those, those things have that sense of being saturated. And that's the, 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 the difficulty we have um, is somehow to um, press the idea through all the parts. Now, that's a long, woolly statement. Um, but 
I perceive it as the, the, um, the, um, the, the direction in which his architecture is going. Now, does anybody want to say anything? <laughs> Except thank you. <laughs> yes. Um, it's very nice of you to see you again, um, Professor Doshi, having been together in a conference on acoustics in 88, um, when I spoke on the courtyard houses of Baghdad and you spoke about uh, Jaipur. What is uh, fascinating about your architecture is that your understanding of the Indian culture and its, all its aspects, whether it's Hindu or Islamic, from first principles. And this is not only in terms of space, volume, whether it's in architecture or urbanism, but it's also how the buildings are used culturally. I was fascinated when you said that the concept of entering the building was actually embedded in the mythical culture. May I say that in my own culture, as an Arab and a Muslim from Baghdad, I know it's a bit infamous name to talk about at the moment, but we're talking about culture, so that's permissible. That the concept of entering a building and orientation was actually embedded in the Mesopotamian architecture 2000 BC. And in the Omen text, it did say how you should orientate your building vis-a-vis -vis the sun and the wind. And that is certainly the concept that is being used or has been used up to the 1930s and 50s in Baghdad by the master builders and throughout the um, periods of um, Islamic and, and pre-Islamic um, architecture in Iraq and indeed in the rest of the Middle East. Um, I, the thing about our culture, what you call East, and I call it South as opposed to the North, and it's the, really the first world and the third world, is that our architecture and urbanism seem to encompass every aspect of life in terms of religion, relationship, in terms of climate, whether it's the void and the solid, the outside, the inside, and the in-between, physically, climatically, environmentally, as well as socially. The concept of the Huvaili house, which is incidentally an Arabic word meaning the space that creates the house is in fact embedded in that as in, in Jaipur. Uh, it is uplifting to see your architecture, although I, one or two aspects, I, when you had one of the new cities where you had very formal facades along the main streets, I was worried about A, orientation, B, overshadowing, especially in winter, and C, you get the wind, where you have convective cooling as well as air movement. But then, having admired such an architecture, and I say it with a true heart and mind, something has gone wrong in India, especially when you look at Bombay, the facade, the, the, the new buildings along the Corniche, the way modern architects, or modernly trained architects, even using the so-called um, sunbreakers, as elevational treatment, and yet they are exactly identical on all the facades, despite the fact that the sun has a different relationship from one facade to the other. And sadly, I also saw 
the so-called postmodern architecture just outside Bombay, where it has absolutely nothing to do with India. They were playing with shapes, color, and exactly imitating what some architects are doing in this country and in America. And I hope the message would be that India look inwards to the spirit of your architecture and culture, but at the same time look outwards for the technology. Master the technology, but do not be mastered by it. That was, that was a statement. Yes. <laughs> that was a statement. Um, can you explain why you're so antagonistic to, um, particularly to postmodern, when uh, what you've seen of Doshi's own work is full of quotation from the West? That is, there's nothing particularly special about uh, young architects being influenced by the, 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 uh, the shift of taste uh, in, in, in a foreign culture. That is, that <coughs> the difficulty is to escape from uh, uh, that influence. I, I, I think that uh, an architect, when he's past 40, really can't afford to work with quotation. Now, that might sound an old-fashioned uh, view, but one can't imagine uh, 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 a cineast or a poet um, lifting whole lines uh, and embedding them in his, in his things. It simply doesn't happen. You know? uh, uh, um, now, uh, in Doshi's case, the, the, um, in, the, in the studios, you know, I, because of us being born in the same time, you know, I see Jose Louis Sert, Yes. You know, I mean, there's people's, people's spaces, <coughs> people's forms are quotable. And it's only gradually that an architect sheds that inheritance. And of course, when it's from an architect in one generation before, he learned that uh, as a carpenter learns it. <coughs> and that's why it's so, in, it's so difficult to escape from. If you've learned how to handle space, in the same that a carpenter will learn to handle a saw or a chisel from his master. Uh, it's frightfully difficult to get out of it. I mean, you, um, one always hopes one's dentist is um, better than his predecessor, but I'm almost sure that he's the same, you know. <laughs> <laughs> that was another statement. <laughs> I thought, Peter, you might have wanted me to answer, but um, I take your point. I leave a um, chance to other people. Um, first of all, just like to express my admiration as well for your work and also for your analysis. Um, I wanted to ask a question about your analysis, which is um, its connection to uh, Western theoretical writings. Um, as you were speaking, it seemed to me that um, a lot of what, you're, what you said was paralleled in certain writers, um, for instance, I mean, names which spring immediately to mind are Rick Wirt, Christopher Alexander, um, Venturi, and Colin Rowe. And I wondered to what extent your analysis that you gave of, of Indian architecture and ritual and so forth is influenced by that, or whether it is something that you've drawn out um, yourself. Well, uh, 
Christopher is my friend. I do know Venturi and I also know Professor Rickward. But uh, I have not uh, really, I would say that I have discussed with them, you know, sometimes. But I don't think that uh, this could be a direct influence. What has happened is that if you work in India all the time and you meet people, not necessarily architects. Actually, my, one of the advantages of my getting involved with other people, a non-architect, people who are connected to philosophy or science, I mean, physics or maybe um, spiritual matters or you go and meet their people who have rituals. I think the interesting thing is that you begin to learn something else from them. And I think quite a bit of things, you know, I had to learn because I always ask this question if I go to a temple or a hut, why are they doing it that way? I think there are mud houses, you know, which are there and they don't even have a gate there. There's no gate. This whole village is there and it's empty. The doors are not even locked. Not that there's nothing to steal, but I think the whole camaraderie which comes in, then you ask them, and then if you stay with them overnight, you find out that how not only hospital they are, hospitable they are, but they are also, uh, they dance and sing, and then you begin to get the meaning of these places. Years ago, when I was teaching in India, in Ahmedabad, students, and there was some problem, because they used the word called veranda and portico and this like, uh, maybe terrace, and the designs were not coming out. So I said, could you do one thing? I said, I would like each one of you to speak at least very close to your original language, which I can understand. So some spoke in Gujarati, some spoke in Hindi, some translated. Do you know, all of a sudden, the meanings began to change of what they were talking? Because the moment they said, no, we go there and we step on that place and we are holding the column or the terrace is being used for drying clothes, for uh, sleeping there at night, or flying kites, you know, in, on that 14th January. I think that all those things, they're forgotten. I think very often, we ourselves close down our perception, which is in our subconscious, through language or through discourse. Because the language being alien, the vocabulary gets limited, and therefore our expressions become limited. And this was to me very revealing. But this never happened, and I found out, and the students work immediately, the whole class became very different. Because they began to ask, you know, the question about little moldings, why the columns were like this, why there was grill, why there were thresholds, why there were territories. Before, they were not talking about it. Looking at, looking at Western culture, I personally feel a sense of loss, because, for instance, when you were speaking about the ritual of um, putting the stake in at, nor at the northeast corner to fix the world for a moment, to establish the house. Um, I mean, for me, that echoed something in, in one of Rickworth's books about, um, I think it was Roman ritual, for instance, the way they established the town. Um, and for us, that ritual does not exist anymore. There is not that culture, um, that life, which we can use in our architecture in the way that you seem to be able to. Um. Actually, it was a coincidence. When I did, after working with Corbusier and using the climatic grid, that southwest was the breeze direction, and I made the house, my own house and other houses, because you have to get the breeze to the bedrooms and the living room, you orient your buildings to the south or west, the entrance automatically happens to come to the north or east, because otherwise you lose your privacy. That is how really I made those plans. When these gentlemen came and told me that this is wonderful, I said, my God, how come? Then I read the books. So the thing that I have found out that our religious textile, I mean, texts were very much interested in asking people not to do certain things 
and the only way they could do is to touch their superstition. For example, there's a plot which goes, let's say, like this. It's a cow, you know, this is the entrance, this is the door road, and this is the house, which is a cow shape. This is the face of the cow. And this one is the face of the tiger. This is a normal plot. The treatise says that if you buy the plot which has the face of a tiger, you will be eaten up. Simple. It's very simple. Everybody who wants to build a house wants to show off his property. So he will spend so much money on the decoration on the outside that he will have no space inside at all. So he's broke, you know, he just shows for outside, he's broke. So these are really the very interesting things, you know, which have been converted to religious treatises. So what I do usually, I try to do is to really find out and then find And you can uh, define the conditions in which it operates and the conditions of the mind of the man who would live there. The difficulty is transposing that into um, the scale of the hundred thousand that we've been talking about. That is, and now I'm talking again about shedding, shedding one's great-grandfathers. That is, the uh, modern urbanism, you could say, started with the uh, Cité Industrielle of Tony yes. Garnier. Tony Garnier drew every house. That is, it was a, a new phenomenon to draw every house to make a town plan. And of course, the next generation, which is Le Corbusier, they drew every house. Um, and uh, in the 50s, when uh, we started, we followed them. And when you see it now, in the 90s, you know, uh, uh, drawing 100,000 and you're drawing every house, it's absurd. Yes. That is that there was something along the Christopher Alexander 60s line where you try to define um, the characteristics you needed for the 100,000, right. uh, that you need to find a notation for that, right. which doesn't demand drawing every house. 
because it will never be built like any house, and you step immediately into the uh, what is fashionable now, which is um, really block planning of buildings which will never be built. Well, that's absurd, you, you know. Therefore, the 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 in my view uh, that the that what I'm going to call the Garnier line is run to the ground, you know, and, and that the, 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 the legalistic or uh, uh, the defining of the way a town should go, if it is to go to be organized through the open spaces, yes, through the voids, yes, is a, a different kind of drawing and a different kind of model, maybe no model, you, you know, from that of that from which we, I can't, <coughs> I've lost my um, grammar. It's, it cannot be drawn from the tradition that we have inherited. It has to be invented. Yes, sure. And the, the, the weakness of my generation, our generation, uh, is of the paucity of invention along that line. And uh, there were hints of what might be done in the 60s. But it's now uh, blocked to young minds by uh, a revival of formalism. Formalism will not work for urbanism. That's right. You know, it's a dead duck. Uh, therefore, the, 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 there could be a, a, a critique of one of your 100,000 plans in which you, you, you sort of take it off the wall, examine what the... Well, I can give you how we were trying to do the old plan of Jaipur had certain laws. The laws were very interesting. First of all, when you want an economic structure, you really have a common walls between the two properties. So naturally, a code begins to come out. The new laws which have come out talk about margins on the boundaries. Mm. So the new houses which are built in Jaipur now don't work either way. So what we had to do to develop several parameters of control, like when you are on a main road and you want to have control, we had given them maybe, let's say, 10 alternatives by writing there what they mean. Like you talk about performance criteria. Mm. So you talk about performance criteria, then you talk about the, the kind of size that you can get. So you say how much air you need, or how much light you need, and what section should you do out of which then you develop certain norms, not necessarily fully, but the whole idea was then you begin to get somewhere closer to what you're saying, mm. that we talk about the laws which will give you not only variety, choice, dependent upon the present needs. Because the, the British laws, which we still follow in India, whether it is a toilet or a window, we say 10% window or door. Actually, we should really find out what are the air changes and what is the light reflecting quality and how much light should you get and if you have such and such orientation, what kind of angle you may be able to get. So those were the studies. We tried to, we did those kind of studies and we said, look, here is a broad guideline. Now you develop the guideline and go about this. So this is how we are saying. But it is true that we cannot have a straight jacketed plan, you know, saying, well, solids and voids and that's good enough. No. Neither we can go and say that these laws which were useful for one culture may be useful mm -hmm. now. Because it is not only the technology which has changed, even the lifestyles have changed. For example, I don't know whether you noticed, but the two very detailed plans of the cluster, the spaces between the houses, between the old plan and new plans are very different. 
because we did uh, try and find out how much air and light you will need. Not only that, but the need to have trees inside the court, the need to have privacy. I think these are new mm. notions which have to be brought in. Whether it is a television which is blasting or whether you want really a privacy for some other reason. I think these are the things which we added there. Yeah, it's, um, in in um, Ankara, which you could say is a frontier between East and West, um, where the public spaces are almost in the sense of the public spaces is almost interchangeable with Bombay. The, uh, where they <coughs> maintained the historical pattern, it's fantastic how uh, it's penetrated by the West. That is all the things you're saying. Everybody, if you're a carpenter, you bring your truck in, uh, you, you, you know, the noise, etc., etc. Therefore, the, the, the uh, Historical fabric uh, uh, begins to shake, you know. That is, I don't mean literally, mm -hmm. but it, but it, it, uh, it has the same people living in it, more or less. Uh, they have the same trades, more or less. But the that lock that I was talking about between the spaces and the houses begins to fracture, you know, and, and that uh, it's the uncovering of uh, the new modes. Um, which should produce, at least you would think in our generation, a kind of housing cluster, which yes. more or less fitted the new pattern. That's you right. know. And, and uh, um, you know, there was something fantastically inert about the two slides of the red building. You know, the, the, uh, um, uh, um, that is, that there's something mi totally missing in, in such a configuration. And there's something totally missing in configurations which only imply that, uh, you know, only dogs and people walking are there because it's not real. You, 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 you know, the, the, the motor car, the delivery of, of goods by truck has penetrated everywhere. Sure, you know, sure. You know, uh, 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 I think it's... Um, um, we have. We it's have. most. It's most visible at, at at these bridge. You know, you could say Bombay is also halfway between the east and the west. You, you yeah. know, and and the the, the 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 problems show up very critically in in these situations. Well, actually, whenever we have a renovation in old city of Ahmedabad, and the moment you have opened one road for, you make one street one way, and therefore you have to have an access on the side to bypass. All those streets have now not only modified, they have been totally destroyed mm -hmm. because the shops begin to occur, the other changes begin to take place, and the streets are not so big, the prices go up, etc., etc. So you begin to see the whole thing destroyed. Mm -hmm. What we tried to do here was we did study the um, transportation need, ownership need of the transport, whether it's two-wheeler motorized traffic or the private car and whatnot. And if one was seeing this in detail, you would find there are large chunks of areas given for that, so that access almost up to the entrance of the gate, main gate, is now available to everybody. And that is why the spaces had to be much bigger. Mm -hmm. But then the house sizes change, so the densities begin to reorganize, restructure. I think we had to do that. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, it would not work. I mean, 
the old pattern is good to create shadows and all that. We have to discover other pattern and we have to plant trees. We need other needs. We, you know, when you ask people, their aspirations are also like that. I mean, they would like to have these things. It is a problem. And I don't know. I mean, if it is, when it's being built and when this happens, we, we have to see what, hap- what goes on. I wonder if you're not losing sight of something that possibly you as the old guard have forgotten, which is that what needs must. In that, I think in both your work, that's the two people sitting there, you've both demonstrated an understanding about what urbanism is about, which is looking at the past and trying to see the future. What I mean by what needs must is that it's never been, nor is it today, or possibly I would dare to say in the future, necessary to draw more or to plan more than you need or what is necessary. And I would have thought that the problem that you have as the old guard is that you've forgotten some of the lessons that were put to you in 1933, I think it was, in Athens. There was a charter written manifesto, which somehow got put in the dustbin during the period when you demolished Siam. And I wonder whether you'd like to comment on that, especially in view of the fact you're still looking, I think, for utopias in the way you're talking about urbanism and how one has to grapple with it, remembering, of course, that the meat of the city is places where people work and where people live and they are quite transient in their rather humble way, and they're not that important. Cities do change, and I think that's something we have understood. Yes, I, um, as a <coughs> the reason for um, Siam being dissolved, it seems to me, that was it seeming lack of radicalism in the 50s. The very issues that um, we have failed to face, and I don't want to recycle the Tony Garnier story again, but um, in the 50s, um, the sort of planning of Sandia was wonderful, but it was dead. It's, it's not throwing away Siam, but throwing away its the attempt was to keep the radicalism and not to fall into pleonasm, that is copying. And I would have thought that um, um, on the whole, the Team 10 generation hadn't done so badly. Uh, um, I'm suddenly defending my own position that uh, I would have thought that there were at least 10 things had happened in uh, between the 60s and now um, which had a kind of radicalism of 
solving problems as they stand now, as they stood then and now. Um, and the discussion was really a private discussion between Doshi and I about drawing everything is a is a something we're entirely familiar with. The difficult bit is doing anything different, you know. Uh, and and uh, um, the the supportive uh, uh, on the um, three generations argument, the hope always was that the from the the the, the the numerate generation, the generation of the 60s, that is, Christopher Alexander and co, would offer a further tool towards this problem. But in fact, Christopher Alexander has fallen back on a kind of uh, um, Austrian arts and crafts, you know, I mean, which doesn't get any of us an inch further. That is, every generation has to be supported by the succeeding generations equally to be supported by the, the one before. Uh, so that there's been precious little help to prevent us from doing this, this kind of planning. I'm I think my question is, is really, is it necessary to progress in that possibly overriding the 10 things we might have learned is the realization that things possibly will go a lot slower because we realize that things didn't change an awful lot between, let's say, the, if we're talking about urbanism specifically, um, the 19th and 20th century, that building technology and the way humans behave hasn't changed an awful lot. But we've had different theories and different ideas, of course. But I think that we're beginning to realize now, are we not, that um, things haven't changed very much in terms of 20th century life. Life is still something that you know, we're possessed with in the same way that we were 100 years ago. Therefore, why should we be looking to progress the whole time? Why, why surely, surely, sorry, what I'm trying to say is that overriding those 10 things or whatever it is that you claim that we've learned since the 60s is the realization that we're discovering something very important about the world in terms of modernism or the modern age or the age of egalitarianism, which somehow overrides that. I mean, I, I would suspect from seeing Mr. Doshi's work this evening is that he's realized that possibly India has, or the so-called third world countries, have a tremendous advantage over us in that they're not wasting things as much, and possibly they're making, uh, what was it? Need must, you know, needs must. They have, they have a more sanguine, a more sane view of the pace at which things do change. I mean, <clears throat> I'm sorry, I can only answer most. Not a, that's not a, that's another statement. I make a counter statement. The whole time, for ten minutes during Doshi's talk about the void, I was thinking about the WC pan. And because I have a kind of general theory that when you convert an old building, it's very important to bring in really marvelous pieces of equipment because it's, you kind of lift, the, th the thing you bring in lifts the structure into a new period. And I was thinking, well, that's odd. I've never thought about the WC pan spatially. 
But it obeys the same when you think about the, the loo in a house from the 18, after the general <coughs> sewage in London, after 1850, 1849, place selling German sanitary equipment, you realize the pan and the wash basin and the bath has a special demand. It creates a space. Therefore, I don't think things are not changing. They're changing fantastically. I mean, that is that uh, the truck that brings the stuff to, 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 to Sainsbury's is wholly different to the truck of our childhood that brought the food to the little shop. It has demands. It has them even in a, in a normal, non-Christopher Alexander sense. It has a, a turning circle of such and such. It has a noise level of such and such. All the things we say about people, uh, you can say about the equipment which is not generated through architecture. It's self-generated. And that sense of self-generated things demanding having their own spatial rights or their own spatial uh, counterpart, I think is, a, is, is, a, is a unarguable. You, you can't put a, a, a WC into a room shaped as it was 100 years ago. It seems to me, you know, I mean, uh, okay, People are changing very very little. Well, if I may answer this question slightly differently, we are uh, we are very uh, let's say we are uh, not very well off economically, but the things are changing. Technology has changed. Our communication systems have changed. People are now having motorized two wheelers. They are having televisions, the telephone and the satellite communication is changing. Now what does that mean? It means, you know, that they not only want very good facilities, but they also want mobility at the same time. On the other hand, things which have not changed is the climate. It has gone worse than what it was, because if you have no trees, it gets worse off. The dust storms were not there before, now there are dust storms. So what do you do with the things, you know, which should not have changed, which have improved, but which have deteriorated and some aspirations have changed? So, one is talking about then an expanding area and shrinking area at the same time. So what we thought was that if we really made these distinctions very clearly in the mind and said, we will make this into an energy conscious city, I think our attitudes begin to become different. What um, Peter is talking about is that the kind of uh, toilet facilities they want or the access to the vehicle they want or the privacy that they want, we have to give. But we have to also find out how do we save money or how do we recycle this drainage system so that the water is available to us. So we are using a very new technology which was not available to us yesterday 
or maybe even decades ago, we have to now try to use that in our work. At the same time, give the people the freedom within their house or within the space that they need. Now, these two things, you know, we, if you combine, I think then the next question that they're asking is, will there not be further changes in the house form itself? Sure. But it's not necessary that the street has to be changed. That's why I said that that void, there is a lot of constant in that void. And I think that solid is getting transformed. And therefore, your linkages, your proportions might change. And that is the reason why we tried to do this exercise. So I think change has to be there because people otherwise won't go and stay there at all. I think everything is to be different. It cannot be the same as Jaipur. I now feel I have to defend myself. I wasn't against change. I'm just saying that the pace is sort of impatient. Well, I tell you, India, India is changing so fast. You see, the... Yes, but are you talking about phenomena? Are you talking about the means, your, your ability no, no. to grapple with it? No, no. The, the technology that we have at this moment may not be changed except going to a, maybe a few degrees more. But I think within the house, on the street, where you do commerce, where you go out to the school, I think things have changed. That is why I believe that a building form is not really the one I'm talking about as architecture. I'm talking about layers. I'm talking about the open spaces between them. That was the reason I talked about, because the moment one talks about the building as a form, I think one is in a trap. It's like a living organism. I don't know whether I'm, I have answered your question, but that's... I think so, but I, 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 I was actually probably criticizing Peter Smithson more than yourself in the sense that I got the feeling that he still wanted to make utopian plans, but possibly I misunderstood. But I think there is a, there is a tendency... I am anxious to make utopian plans. <coughs> I got it right then. Why? Anyway, I won't hog this, I'm sorry. <coughs> okay. Well, thank you. Oh, I see. He's There's one more. Uh, Subi. Yeah. Um, Ali Asghar Jivanji, I'm based in Surat, very near to your own city. Um, as a practicing architect in India, uh, we've all been greatly inspired by your work, and um, we've often seen you there in lectures and so on. The, uh, the way you presented your projects, in, in, in the way you um, were inspired by religious and textures of the religion, and the way you transplanted that into a, a form for a new town um, is highly inspiring. Um, but I think there's a reality. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm asking you a very pragmatic question, that in India, I think we have a certain reality um, where the, uh, the, the red tape and the bureaucracy is, is so overwhelming. And I would really like you to inspire us on how to achieve some of the great quality of architecture overcoming this, this problem in the Indian context. Thank you. I gave two examples. One was the blotting paper and the other one was open-endedness. I think if you can use these two simultaneously in your dialogue with people, I think they get absorbed and then you are still open to do what you like. Would you like to be the last of me? 
Um, I was fascinated by, in fact, um, apropos what Julian Wickham, I believe, yes, um, said, another ex-AA, um, about progress. I always, when I give lectures to, especially to Arab Muslims and third world countries, is that they tell me how do we progress? But progress from where to where and what does progress mean? Progress can be attained if my today is better than yesterday and my tomorrow would be better than today. And that is culturally, spiritually, economically, and above all, it's the way of life. And they said to me, how do we catch up with the West? Well, I said, I have no desire to catch up with the West. I may be underdeveloped technologically, but it does not mean that my culture is inferior to that of the West. It is different. And therefore, I don't see why this rat race towards progress and rate of progress and all the economic aspects, which I think what Julian was um, hitting at. Um, I was fascinated when you said they were actually describing the architecture in their own language. May I say that the people ought to really use the terminology which the traditional people use for the various spaces, building elements, and mass production techniques in their own language. And these terminologies actually contain architectural, cultural, as well as linguistic meanings and derivations. And in terms of um, Islam, if I may talk about it, it combines Arabic, Persian, Turkish, and Urdu. The Havli is only one example. The Baghcha, which is the planted area of the courtyard, is actually Urdu. Bagh meaning paradise or small garden. And Cha is diminution which means a small paradise. And if any of you have read the Quran, there are so many references in paradises in the heavens and with um, rivers flowing underneath. And I think, I mean, I admire the courtyard you actually designed in the Gandhi, in the Mahatma Gandhi Center in um, Ahmedabad. Now there is a modern building, but it has all the elements of traditional uncultural, Indian cultural um, architecture and urbanism. And yet, you did not use arches, you used columns and beams. And may I say, Islamic architecture is not arches. The spirit of Islamic architecture is far deeper than the, what I say, the makeup, the cosmology, the, 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 the just simply um, decoration of the facades. In other words, a European building with arches imposed on them in order to produce so-called Islamic architecture. It's far more interesting to look at the concept of the plan of urbanism and the relationship between the various spaces and the terminologies used by them, the in-between, the space, the inside and the outside. And I believe we can get it right and you have showed us so. Thank you. Uh, <clears throat> boringly enough, I shall have the last word. I believe architecture has a life of its own. It is a discipline. The finest Islamic architect, Sinan, was a Christian. That is, <coughs> architecture had reached a takeoff point and he took off. It has a life separate from the culture. And what was wonderful about the, the spaces and buildings that had the level of saturation was the sense that the architecture had reached 
this takeoff point. You know, it was uh, in itself something, like a man is something, or a truck is something, or a WC man is something. The space had something of its own. And that's when it's miraculous. You know? And that's where actually we have no control over it. That is, we are the agents for the architecture to flow through us. And if by chance we're out of the historical moment of the takeoff, that uh, that takeoff won't, won't occur. You know, it's, 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 it's in a way um, like a play. That is, that struggle how one may, if the politics, the truck design, the WC design of the period is not at the takeoff point, you personally would have enormous difficulties in making the truck or the WC. It's a sad, it's a sad story. But when it happened, as with Sinan, it's a miracle. Thank you. Thank you.